This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two just pretty regular fantastic people and one super stupendous human being. I'm here with Paul Jaisley. Hello. Kate Lamphere. Hi. And library specialist. I don't know what to, what the proper title is, Amy. I'm sorry. Amy Wright, thank you so much for being here with us this week. Thanks for having me. You know, before we get into the show, I do want to ask um, for all of you out there who are wondering who is this special guest, Amy, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we jump into what we've been reading and the regular questions I ask every single week? Sure. So um, I am a comic book librarian. And uh, for anybody listening, uh, this is a relatively new specialty. Um, We've certainly been around, uh, you know, comics have been in schools and libraries for decades, but we actually just got professional recognition from the American Library Association. So to put it in sort of comic book and gamer language, the American Library Association is our professional guild. It is the oldest, largest uh, library association in the world. Um, So there's almost 100,000 members all across, and it represents uh, libraries in Canada, the United States, and Mexico, but we also have international influences. Um, And so we are the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable, and I am the first president, or as I like to joke, because I'm half Canadian, the first prime minister. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us and talk with us about comic books and and all this stuff, and we're going to get probably into more of that in the second half of the show. But before we um, go too crazy talking about all that. I want to ask the question I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kate. I've been good. I have been trying to get through the 2020 Goodreads reading challenge, and I haven't gotten very far because I've been trying to read uh, some of my other backlog first, but I've used all of my Hoopla checkouts, uh, and I have 15 days to read a whole bunch of books now, so <laughs> I'm going to stay busy. I believe in you. Um, I did manage to get How to Treat Magical Beasts volumes, volumes 3 and 4 out of the physical library before they closed temporarily. This is by Kazia. I've talked about this before. Um, Ziska is the main character. Um, she's training to become a, le- a veterinarian, but she has some magic, so of course she's the one that's finding all of these rare magical beasts around that need, need her help. Um, volume 3 ended on a potentially dark note. Uh, Ziska... Uh, meets a new person who maybe doesn't have the best interests for her and that's how how the volume ends so i was horrified and very glad that i had volume four already (laughs) and so that opened and it wasn't quite as dark as i thought it might be uh but it was definitely the darkest uh spot that this series has gone so far um and then volume four ended on another cliffhanger but it was a much more whimsical one so i've got uh, a good ending temporarily until volume five comes out in December. I'm mad that I have to wait, but right. <laughs> this is the problem when you've got these really cool like manga volumes and series that are just like the hottest shit right now. And then you're like, oh, wait, there's only three or four volumes out in yeah. English. Like, why yep. did I put myself through this? Why did I do this? I have to wait too long for this. <laughs> Yeah, and then I also read the the book of the month for for our Goodreads group, which is Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, Volume 1. This is by Julie Benson, Shauna Benson, Claire Rowe, and then a whole bunch of other... Uh, it has a very large creative team, but those are the biggest names on, on the, on the uh, cover, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this was my, my introduction to Batgirl and Canary, and I loved them. Um, there was another character called the huntress who was just 
grumpy the whole time. Um, so I'm kind of iffy about her, but I already have vol- uh, volume two because mm-hmm. I accidentally checked out volume two instead of volume one from the library. So I'm at least going to read the next volume. Okay. Let me know how that is because I was... I was on the fence about reading the next volume of that series because I, I did enjoy volume one, but I wasn't completely sold on it. So you have to let me know how that goes. Yeah, I, I was. I pretty much felt the same way, except that I already have volume two, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, well, Paul, what about you? How have you been? How have comic books been? Um, I've been good. Um, the issue I'm running into is I have so much free time um, that that combined with the huge stacks of comics I have laying around to catch up on, I find myself not knowing where to start. I, f- I feel yeah. like that. I feel like the Burgess Meredith character on that Twilight Zone episode when the like the world ends and he's in the library, right? And he comes mm-hmm. out of the bunker mm-hmm. and like he has all the time in the world to read, but the, he steps on his glasses. I haven't done that yet, but I feel like I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I don't know where to start with my uh, my huge stacks of comics. But I managed to read a few things that I wanted to talk about. Um, one was I read the uh, book Bowie, Stardust, Ray Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams. This is the David Bowie biography that. Mike Allred and Laura Allred did with Steve Horton that came out uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a pretty casual David Bowie fan, uh, but luckily this book focuses on the period I kind of know the best. It focuses on him getting into the music industry up through the release of the album Diamond Dogs. So that's like 1974. So it covers about you know like a, a five, six, seven year period in his life. And it's obvious that Mike Allred loves David Bowie. This feels like a passion project. Um, the energy of the musical performances comes through through the page, which it's often hard for comic book artists, I think, to capture the energy of uh, musical performance in the sort of you know flat, silent medium of comics. But mm-hmm. he does a really good job of that here. There's so many awesome just splash pages of Bowie playing live, or you know the band rehearsing. It just looks it looks you can hear the music through the page almost, you know. Um, yeah. And there's some amazing like splash pages he does where it'll be a visual interpretation of lyrics, you know, so the song uh, life on Mars, which is, I mean, that's one of my favorite Bowie songs. There's a whole page where it's just the lyrics being drawn out, you know, graphically. And it's, it's a really striking image. So um, that said, if you are a Bowie aficionado and know a lot of the lyrics, there's a lot of little Easter eggs and visual references for you to find. It's like, where's Waldo sometimes trying to find uh, if there's a crowd scene, like, like name the sixties rock star in the crowd. It's kind of fun to do that. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, there's a it's an interesting framing device they use to explain this time period and why it was so uh, creatively fruitful for David Bowie. And I'm I'm glad that they focus on a really short period of time. But the last like few double page spreads are basically these like montages of the rest of his career. And it's like, boy, I really want that sequel. I want to give me the sequel. Where it's him and Iggy Pop hanging out in Berlin in the late 70s, or give me the sequel about him in the 90s. So hopefully they can do a follow up to of. Uh, to this book at some point, kind of cover the later career of David Bowie. Overall, I really enjoyed it. Even if you're not a Bowie fan, it's probably worth checking out. Maybe it'll turn you on to his music. That sounds awesome, man. I mean, especially with Mike Allred and Laura Allred on mm-hmm. art, that's that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's really visually striking. So uh, the other book I caught up on was Far Sector. Um, I read issues two through five. Uh, this is the DC Young Animal title written by uh, N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell. Um it's a Green Lantern adjacent type of comic where it's about a young upstart Green Lantern, a new Green Lantern, who is um, uh, basically sent to the furthest sector in the universe to a huge uh, galactic city called City Enduring to investigate a murder, the first murder that's occurred in the city for over 500 years. Um, 
and she drops into this uh, city and discovers there's, you know, three different races in having the city. They have a lot of tension, bad blood between them. And uh, she's trying to navigate all that at the same time, investigate a murder in a society where they don't know how to investigate murders anymore since it's been so long since there's been one. So it's a really interesting mix of hard sci-fi because N.K. Jemisin is a science fiction writer and you can tell that they bring a lot of that um, hard sci-fi element to the story. There's a lot of pages where they're explaining the dynamics between the, the different races. Um, a lot of the nuts and bolts example stuff of science fiction. On top oh, of yeah. that, you have the police procedural, you know? Mm-hmm. In that aspect, it really is a perfect Green Lantern story. And I also really liked Campbell's artwork. That said, it's that artwork that's so... It, there's a luminous quality to the coloring that I feel, if you read it digitally, it's going to pop way more than the physical copies I'm reading. So I'm kind of actually curious to go back and reread it, or at least look at it when it comes out digitally. Um, there's also a lot of like Afrofuturism in the artwork, which I think is really interesting. And that ties into the social political commentary of the book. The last couple issues that I read really sort of focus on Sojourner Mullen. That's the Green Lantern the book is based on or focuses on. Mm -hmm. It focuses on her past history on earth, um, issues of, you know, um, racism, issues of police brutality, um, issues of, you know, uh, political protest that comes up in the book. So it feels like a very contemporary take on, uh, you know, a Green Lantern story. Luckily, if you don't know anything about the Green Lantern, it's not connected to the current continuity. You can pick this up and enjoy it on its own without worrying about any of that. So, so far, I'm really, really enjoying this book. I think it's a 12 issue mini, so we'll see how it wraps up, you know, if it does at this point. So. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you, you've almost interested me in a Green Lantern book. <laughs> um, I don't understand it. Uh, so maybe, maybe I'll check this out. This sounds really cool, man. Yeah, I definitely highly recommend it. Well, Amy, what about you? Have you uh, How have you been? How have comic books been? Have you been reading anything lately that you want to tell us about? Um, totally. I think one of the assumptions about a librarian is that we read all the time. And the truth is we don't always read everything in its entirety. I'm surrounded by books and have yet to, you know, push through a huge one, but mm -hmm. two that I want to spotlight that I've been reading now. Um, I've uh, started Jean Luen Yang's new Superman smashes the clan. Mm -hmm. So this is being released as periodicals through DC comics. And this is actually based on the historical 1940s uh, Superman radio serial, which is called clan of the fiery cross. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was actually able to get, I'm very happy <laughs> an advanced reading copy that collected a, a bunch of the periodicals ahead nice. of time. And it's really good. So it's, uh, you know, targeted at sort of a middle grade, upper teen audience. Um, and it's the year is 1946. And the Lee family has just moved from Metropolis's Chinatown to the center of the bustling city. And so it talks a lot about Superman. It's sort of his origin story. But you also have it told through um, the Lee family and uh, the two kids in the family. And I found it really compelling. Um, the advanced reading copy I had, that has a lot of really good back matter of Gene Yang talking about the inspiration and sort of his own family's origin story, how he came to comics, and also how he thinks that comics can be such an important metaphor for talking about history. And also, I think reinvigorating that story of Superman in a way that sometimes gets minimized or flattened. Um, I should note that, you know, I'm sort of a librarian, but I'm also um, a full-time history uh, graduate student right now. So I'm focusing on comics and history. So pretty much this explains what I'm reading. So I've got Superman <laughs> smashes the clan. And then the other comic um, that I've been reading, but that I've actually had a few back issues that I just haven't had a chance to get around to. And I read them this week with Bitterroot um, because I have finally been catching up on Watchmen. 
Yeah. And you know what the Watchmen series, yeah. Um, it opens with the 1921 uh, Tulsa race massacre, and this is something that's sort of forgotten to history. There's not something, it's not something that um, before Watchmen and actually Bitterroot makes allusions to it as well. Um, it's not something that has a lot of historical notation. So I've been going back and reading Bitterroot, and actually I've started rereading Watchmen, which is awesome. And um, I just love also the way that they all play with history and sort of they themselves act as historical documents for the creators sort of responding to the world around them. So that's all really serious and weighty. <laughs> so I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to balance that with, um, at the suggestion of one of my friends, I started reading Hexvet, which is a series uh, published by Boom. And it's sort of really targeted as upper, upper teen, but also like as an adult reader. I really love it. <laughs> And um, it's basically a vet clinic, but it's a magical vet clinic. And it's really endearing. The artwork is lovely and light and exactly the sort of fluffy yet um, comedic counterpart to the sort of the historical 80s uh, sci-fi inspired stuff that I've been reading. So, Well, I have never heard of this Hexvet book. Um, and I just looked it up and it looks adorable. So <laughs> um, I'm glad that you're balancing things between... <laughs> Some of the very heavier stuff that you mentioned. Uh, well, for me, I've been reading a whole bunch of manga. Like, let me just be honest. I talked about Haikyuu last week on the show and how I kind of dropped off of it. And I went back into my, my comics reading log because I have that because I'm, I can't keep track of everything that I've read, you know. And I realized that I hadn't read a volume of Haikyuu in over a, almost a year and a half. And I was kind of kicking myself for it because... I love that series. And so I finally, I did a little bit of tracing around in the Shonen app, um, Shonen Jump app, and I've managed to figure out where I had left off. And then I sat down and I read like 25 chapters in, in a sitting um, because boy, oh boy, volleyball is extremely exciting when you're reading it in manga form. So um, yeah, so I read, I read a little bit of that, but I also want to talk about two books that I really spent a bunch of time on. Um, I read Wasted Space, number 15. This is by Michael Morisi with art by Hayden Sherman and colors by Jordan Wordy, or excuse me, Jason Wordy. And this is the end of the third arc of this series. If you haven't been reading, then none of this matters because that's pretty much the point of the book. Nothing matters. We just kind of need to live out in this big universe that we call life. Um, but I, I feel... Like, I was a little bit lost in this arc of the series, and I realized that Marici, Marici was trying to get our main character, Billy, to a place where um, he could round off the arc in such a way that it almost made me want to cry. And I understand, like, that some of the stuff in the middle of this arc kind of didn't make sense, but it needed, we basically needed to break down this character, Billy, to the point where he had to really, really focus only on himself rather than usually just being a shithead to everybody. Um, and I really, really liked how it all played out. This probably makes no sense if you've never read this series, um, but I want to say that somehow this very sarcastic, very cynical space sci-fi story managed to have like a really big heart in the end of this arc. So I was, I was really impressed by that. Um, I also want to talk about another book that I did not realize came out last week until I checked the Comixology homepage, and this is Hellions number one. It's a new X-Men book. I think it's a miniseries. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's written by Zeb Wells with art by uh, Steven Segoeva, and I just want to say we need to hold the goddamn phone here because this book is the most insane X-Men book I've read in a very long time. Hands down, it's full of the most out there weird villains that are now considered on the team of the X-Men because all mutants are welcome on the Krakoa Island. And, like, 
there are two robot characters like it's all characters that i've never heard of before with the exception of like one of them um and it was one of the age of apocalypse like i I didn't write down any of the characters names but it's that little like mongrel vicious killer character that's an age of apocalypse and then there's a bunch of other people it's it is the most insane book i don't know who gave zeb wells permission to write the wildest x-men book out there i don't know who let him write sinister in the best way that i've ever seen mr sinister written like he's so high and mighty and so sarcastic and so just lovely i don't know how else to describe it um and steven segoiva's art is zany and perfect like it's very capes comic book but at the same time allows for a lot of really cartoonish humor in it uh i really think that if you're looking for a weird x-men book to just kind of jump into that has no ramifications because clearly all this is basically suicide squad but for x-men um and they're all probably going to die in the end i'm not really sure um this book is totally for you um i want to say like it was it was just a wild ride i keep saying that over and over but um yeah this book was really great for me i think it was like the number one pick for a ton of people so this is probably not news to anybody out there that's reading x-men books but man this book really was just a genuinely fun read um in the in this the sea of x-men kind of garbage that exists there right now um this one was really really nice it's a nice highlight so yeah. Okay. Okay, I'll try it, Mike. <laughs> I, see, yeah, I, right. I know. I'm only saying God all of this it. to try to get Paul on board because I think of all of the other books, <laughs> I think you actually might enjoy this one. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. But yeah, let's uh, let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week or in the near future. Um, comic books are hopefully dropping on April 1st, 2020. I'm just gonna assume that everything's <laughs> going to function as normal until I hear otherwise, because as far as I know, digital comic books are still coming out on Wednesday. <laughs> I know there's a whole big thing with Diamond and distribution and local comic shops. That's a whole other big conversation. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Either send us a message on Twitter, jump on our Discord and have a conversation with us. I know we have fans from all across the country and literally all across the world. We have some folks in the UK and Australia that jump on our Discord, and we've all kind of been talking about this, so let us know your thoughts. Um, but anyways, let's talk about comic books that we think are coming out on April 1st, 2020. Uh, what are you excited for this week? I'm going to start with you, Paul. Um, this is a pretty obvious pick, but I'm going to pick Strange Adventures number two. I really like the first issue of uh, of this series. This is, of course, mm-hmm. the new Adam Strange series written by Tom King. Uh, art duties split between Mitch Garrods and Evan Shaner. Um, Adam, Adam Strange is one of those really strange DC legacy characters in that um, no one really knows what to do with him, <laughs> but he's, he keeps popping up all the time. He seems like a holdover from the sort of you know pre-Silver Age sci-fi comics boom right Mm -hmm. and um he has a very simple gimmick he's just a guy who gets sucked into a zeta beam and flown across the galaxy to another planet every once in a while and then he comes back um what do you do with that you know there's not much you can do with that but uh tom king i think had an interesting hook with the first issue where you know adam strange is being accused of being a war criminal while he's on the planet um ron um the planet he goes to via zeta beam um and it made an interesting use of the split art duties because Mitch Garrett is doing the stuff based on Earth. Evan Shaner is doing the more sort of Silver Age superhero adventure stuff on the other planet, which works really well for his art style. And I don't want to project too much or assume too much, but I really feel that Tom King is one of those writers that puts his personal life and personal feelings into his work, whether consciously or, un- or subconsciously. And this book feels like his reaction to some of the negative uh, um 
critiques of Heroes in Crisis, as well as that sort of recent news story or the rumblings online that people were questioning his uh, his um, claims to be involved with the CIA or what he actually did to the CIA. All of that seems to be here in this book, whether he intended it or not. So I think that adds another layer to the book. Um, yeah, I'm a sucker for Tom King at this point, even if even if it doesn't always land or doesn't always stick the landing for me, I kind of like his approach. And again, I think Garrett's and Shane are a really interesting art team seeing them work side by side. It's a really interesting book. So um, hopefully I can get my hands on a copy before too long. Gotcha. So, and this is the way to get Evan Shaner to actually be on a monthly book. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think both of those guys probably need a, you know a little more breathing room to make a, a monthly schedule work. So yeah, it works out. Absolutely. Uh, very cool. Uh, well, you know, Amy, I'm going to pitch over to you. Is there anything that you're excited about that's coming out in the next maybe week or a couple weeks? Um, I've been following uh, Wonder Woman. So Love is a Battlefield, uh, which is volume two, is slated to come out April 1st. Um, so I've really been following that and liking that as a series. I am not usually a DC reader, but, um, you know, I became a big fan. I really like what they're doing um, with Wonder Woman and with this series. I think it's actually providing a really good sort of reintroduction for people. If we hear from a lot, especially in libraries and schools, for people that maybe aren't long-term comics readers and they're always looking for new entry points, they're like, oh, there's such, there's such a great lineage. Like, how do I start? Mm-hmm. And I think this series provides a really nice entry point. So I'm hoping that i can get a copy on um april 1st (laughs) (laughs) fingers crossed fingers crossed um very cool yeah i this is the g willow wilson one right yep very cool very cool yeah i i've been meaning to 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 try her stuff i mean everything that g willow wilson does i always like want to try the volume one so maybe because you've reminded me i'll pick up volume one of this wonder woman run (laughs) okay very cool uh kate what about you what are you excited for this upcoming week I checked out quite a few number ones this week, and it looks like there's some kind of like weird uh, female-led James Bond theme going on. <laughs> okay. Uh, the one that I'm that I'm the most interested in is called Spy Island: A Bermuda Triangle Mystery. This is by Chelsea Kane, uh, Elise McCall, Rachel Rosenberg, and Leah Metternich. Mm-hmm. Uh, the description is. Uh, super spy Nora Freud, no relation, has a plum assignment. Keep an eye on things. And this particular den of intrigue populated by spies, tourists, and evil villains set in global domination. So I'm interested. Like, it, the cover has this kind of matte 90s look to it, which kind of uh, informs that James Bond theme to me. Mm-hmm. Uh but then the interior looks like pretty modern artwork that that I like. Uh, pretty colorful. There's there's some scenes of like scuba diving in the first couple of pages. It looks like which I've I've done before. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, coupled with the 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 mystery theme of this, uh, I'm I'm pretty interested. I'm gonna have to find a way to to check this out next week. Yeah, I. I, I've never heard of this. I, I noticed that as I was looking up new books for this week, there's a ton of number ones coming out, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, like yeah. strangely unfortunate. But um, yeah, this this one looked really cool. Like the cover alone is gorgeous. Like I can totally see just that drawing your eye. Um, but for me uh, this week, I'm excited for two books. I'm just going to mention one very quickly and then I'm going to move on to the other. Um, Nailbiter Returns, number one. This is Joshua Williamson and Mike Henderson. Looks like this is the sequel to their series Nailbiter, which if you haven't read Nailbiter, it's all about a serial killer who, well, 
I guess it's all about a serial killer who grew up in a town that has spawned numerous serial killers over many years. And so the story follows a detective who's trying to get to the bottom of why are all of these serial killers coming from this one town? What is it that makes this happen? Um, And I won't spoil how the book ends because it's a very strange, convoluted way to get to the end of this story. But ultimately, I really, really liked it. I think Joshua Williamson and Mike Henderson did a great job. And um, the the fact that they're coming back to this series um, makes me wonder what more story they have to tell. So I'm very much on board for that. Um, The other book that I'm very excited about is The Ludocrats, number one. This is uh, Jim Rossignol and Kieran Gillen with artists uh, Jeff Stokes and Tom Bonvillain. Uh, and this is the Ludocrats, the Aristocrats of Ludicrous, a collision of the ornate fantasy of Dune and, the M-rated a- and an M-rated asterisk and obelisk. Um, I, I don't know what this possibly could be other than I know it's Kieran Gillen's baby that he's been trying to do for like six or seven years. So I'm on board. It's a five-issue miniseries. Um, the cover looks great. And the, co- the art in general looks gorgeous and wild and zany. And I'm excited to see Kieran Gillen do something that is still probably going to be way over my head, but also very goofy. So, um, yeah, count me in for that. <laughs> um but yeah, I guess let's let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to be talking to Amy all about libraries and comic books <laughs> and what it means to be a librarian of comics and, and maybe a couple other things. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back in just a second. our show this week we are as i said talking with amy wright uh librarian president of the comics and graphic novels roundtable is that what i heard correctly um yeah and so i guess to get things started amy i know you kind of touched on at the beginning of the episode but could you tell us a little bit about your background in comics and working within the library system yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing, and it's definitely something that's been talked about in comics, or maybe if you will, talked around as we talk around things like the direct market and everything. Mm-hmm. This whole library market is actually the largest growing market for comics, period. Mm-hmm. Um, Gina Gagliano um, from Random House Graphics has talked about this uh, quite a bit, especially with the kids' comic market. But um, I mean, schools and libraries, they buy comics and in very large numbers. So that's sort of where our roundtable comes and sort of where I come into all of this is that uh, I had always been a comics reader. I think for most of us who do this kind of work, we always have been, but we sort of either stopped or, you know, whatever. It's I think that the <laughs> lingering stigma is real, sometimes still around comics reading, sadly. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I kind of, you know, I didn't read as much sci-fi. I didn't read as many comic books um, as I got older as an adult. And then when I became a librarian, it was also my introduction. I'm not a big manga reader. Um, That's something that I have on my to-do list (laughs) right Mm -hmm. now. (laughs) And um, one of the things that was really amazing working in the library was to see, you know, we had all the issues of Naruto. And I mean, for so many readers, that is amazing because there's so many issues, right? And to be able to come into the library and get those, check those out, but also have that browsability experience and also for it to not be cost prohibitive. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't quite realize that even though I'd been working in a library for a long time, even though I'd been a comics reader, I didn't really realize that this was sort of a fuel of untapped market that we had in the library. And then with the schools, I mean, if you talk to school librarians and actually ask them to pull 
what we would call circulation statistics. So which books are checked out the most? Um, it's comic books. I mean, mostly it's a lot of Raina Telgemeier and obviously Dave Pilkey, uh, Gene Yang, um, a lot of Amulet, but it's a lot of comic books. So, I mean, there's this huge burgeoning market and it sort of had been alluded to for a long time. I mean, going way back when Will Eisner is in the seventies, really petitioning um, school libraries and public libraries to buy more comics. And he's hitting a lot of pushback. And this is right around the time that, you know, you're starting to see like graphic novel come into use. And I think for a lot of people, it's a little bit more palatable for a school library market. Oh, it's a graphic novel. It's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's all sort of been something that's been percolating for a long time, but especially in the past five to 10 years, I mean, we're seeing, especially with kids comics, like they are outperforming the rest of the print market and especially mm-hmm. schools and libraries. And that sort of goes against the narrative of the direct market and, and general comic sales. And it's this interesting, weird thing and I never thought I would be a comic book librarian. Here I am. <laughs> right, right. I, now, I, I kind of have like a, a tangent question off of that. And I we're, I know we wanted to maybe avoid the full direct market discussion. But at the same time, do you think that the success of some of these kids' comics is just because of the distribution capabilities of some of the publishers? Like like Raina Telgemeier, like her stuff gets published through Scholastic? Or she, she gets published through a, a major like prose book publisher, right? I, I think that definitely helps, but mm-hmm. I also think um, if you look at some of the comic stores that I think are not only doing well, but also really thriving, it's comic stores that have diversified their market right. in terms of what they're stocking and also their approach. Um, a lot of comic book stores who have partnered with schools and libraries to actually act as a vendor for the schools, for the libraries, doing book fairs for the schools. I think you're seeing a huge pickup and a real diversification of readership of comics um, through the stores that have done that. And just very pragmatically, um, I think when we talk about the reading of comics, um, you know, if you will, I'm an expert on reading. I'm not an expert, but like in my brain, <laughs> And I think the stores that have really embraced multiple format reading of comics, like really facilitating easy browsability of web comics, digital reading uh, platforms of comics, but also um, single issues and bound and trade editions. And I think the stores that have done that are some of the stores that have had much more success than others. And I mean, when we talk about our public and our communities, I think that's the thing is any successful business for us, any successful community organization in a library, we're actively always thinking about our communities and our readership and we're pivoting as things change. We're trying to meet people where they are instead of being like, this is what reading looks like. Um, I mean, this is sort of where comics librarianship comes in is that there was a lot of resistance. There still is mm-hmm. <laughs> for a lot of libraries to purchase comics for uh, especially public libraries. And um, one of the things that we've pointed to is that for the libraries that have built very strong um, comics collection, they have one of the highest, what we call ROIs, return on investment. So in terms of buying them and how often they go out. And so for a lot of libraries, we've used sort of the business case, but I think there's been resistance. Even we've seen for some libraries, they'll keep buying, you know, your regular adult bestsellers and they might go out a little bit, but they're overlooking the fact that like the market has changed for us too. And I think the libraries that are doing really well are being responsive to the changes. And I would say the same things with comic books. Like I think the stores that are doing well are being responsive and being like, wow, there's this great 
a school library market, we could do book fairs and we could sell single issues, but we could also sell uh, trades, you know? Mm-hmm. Very cool. You know, I, I feel pretty lucky in that my local library here in Grand Rapids does have a very well-stocked and well-curated comic book collection. And when I started reading comics again about a decade ago, that was a huge resource for me to find new stuff. But even still, I, as a, as a frequent uh, visitor of the library, and I know a lot of our listeners are advocates for comics and libraries, there's still some confusion about how those books end up in the library to begin with. Do you maybe want to give a quick little nuts and bolts discussion of how libraries buy comics and how that sort of business side works? Oh, totally. And I think not dissimilar from when we talk about the direct market, vending actually does impact access. Um, Mm -hmm. For a lot of the schools and libraries, they're buying from usually a single vendor or maybe just one or two vendors. And so there is definitely an issue in terms of getting indie titles, um, single issue titles in libraries. Um, So we have if you will, the equivalent of diamond for the library market. So in the U.S., we have two principal vendors, um, Baker and Taylor and Ingram. There's other vendors, but those are two of the bigger ones, especially for public libraries. And so libraries are purchasing through those vendors. And one of the things for us is, again, not dissimilar from the comic book market, we want to make sure that we're buying titles or what we would call, quote, unquote, shelf ready. Mm-hmm. So books that already have ideally catalog records attached to them, so the metadata attached to them, so we can easily, seamlessly, not only physically add them to our collections, but digitally add them to the technological infrastructure that is our catalog. Mm-hmm. Um and that is prohibitive. So, I mean, obviously things like um, a lot of uh, mass market titles and titles that are being published by obviously Macmillan for a second, Scholastic, there's a lot of um, representation of those titles in libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing for libraries is sort of, <laughs> it's a dorky thing to point out, but it's actually been very prohibitive is a binding issue. Mm-hmm. So. Um, a lot of libraries are very reticent to buy single issues because they are like, oh, single issues, they won't survive. And so the tendency has been to only purchase things um, in a bound edition. And usually, again, through two of our major vendors. Um, one of the things that we definitely have been trying to work on through the roundtable and talking about comics advocacy is we really should be buying for our community. So that means Mm -hmm. diversifying how we buy. And also we have always had magazines and newspapers in the library. So if we're worried about (laughs) single issues, it's sort of that argument doesn't hold water. Right, right. Uh, Mm So definitely the the buying thing has been prohibitive for some. That's why one of when we do partner with comic stores, we say, you know, there is definitely an untapped thing here, especially for single issues. So many libraries are buying from these major vendors, so they're only getting um, books that are already published, you know, in like the trade paperback collected editions, they don't necessarily have the newest single issues. This would be a really great opportunity. So we're starting to see that. Um, some major library systems have done that where they'll partner with um, a comic book store. One of the most successful, very large examples is the Beguiling um, comic book store in Toronto. You know, that's one of the main sponsors of the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. They are actually an approved vendor for comic books on all throughout Ontario. And so they actually partner with the schools and the Toronto Public Library. Um, in Quebec, uh, in Montreal, you also have Drawn and Quarterly fulfills a similar role. So we're starting to see, I think, more of that kind of partnership. But yeah, for us, vending is vending is definitely something that is prohibitive towards us having a broad uh, collection as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So you mentioned off mic that you, most of your job is from home, I assume at a desk, but do you ever go out and do like table at events, for example? Oh yeah. This is in fact how <laughs> I met my people. So um, <laughs> one of the things that we do through the round table and one of the things that I've done a lot, I have probably been to, Oh, it's hard. I wish I could take a photo and send it to you. Maybe I will. I guess I have all my badges from all of the library conventions, but also all the comic cons that I've been to over the past five years it's probably been about 70 or 80 uh, so we actually do through the graphic novel and comics roundtable we do sessions at comic-con so um, some of the largest things we do are c2e2 mm -hmm. we have a pop-up library on the comic-con floor so we have a booth um, that is essentially like a library on the comic-con floor we have comfortable chairs we have a browsing collection we have for kids uh, coloring sheets. We actually are doing story time there. And so that's an advocacy piece. We'll do reading recommendations through the library as well, the pop-up library. Um, but we also have panel sessions. And but those panels are sort of intended audience are librarians and educators, but also parents, uh, people in the community, uh, people at comic stores and creators themselves to just consider, you know, a broad market. Like if you have never considered writing a kid's comic, this might be a great time to do so. <laughs> and for people in the kid's comic market, like it would be really cool to partner with somebody and do an adult title. And just really talking about the fact that comics readership, as we've seen it, is so much broader. Um, our largest event that we do is uh, for New York Comic Con. Um, so for a long time, I work from home now because I'm a full-time grad student, but I was a library manager for more than a decade. And I worked at the New York Public Library managing the school outreach program there for um, about three and a half years. And I was also the collection development librarian on that for a year and a half. And one of the things before I had left New York Public, uh, along with a colleague, Emily Drew at New York Public, we created an event um, called New York Comic Con at the New York Public Library. And it's at, you know, New York Comic Con, you're at Javits, so you're right on the seven lines. So just two stops is the central library for New York Public, uh, right in Bryant Park. And we have a whole day of professional development sessions. Um, so targeted again to librarians and educators talking about like how to use comics in the classroom, how to add comics to your library collections. And we had this past fall, oh gosh, it was like 30 simultaneous sessions we had going on that day. Um, we had several keynote sessions and we had about 3,500 educators and librarians attend. So um, it's a lot of comic conning. Like typically I would go to one or two cons a month. And that includes San Diego, Toronto Comics Arts, Arts Festival, Emerald City, C2E2. We actually had programming scheduled for WonderCon as well in Anaheim. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to, in some ways, have a presence at all of the cons, ideally, in North America, <laughs> right. just to continue to promote that advocacy message. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a lot of conventions. Um, <laughs> I mean, even yeah. just the handful you listed, I'm like, that's that's a whole weekend of of your life that is just exhausting and then you go and do it again like you said you know two or three weeks later i, I mean there was the what was it two years ago when it was c2e2 um and emerald city back to back like that's that's wild <laughs> yeah i did not do the back to back i think that we had some uh, other librarians from west coast who had covered emerald city that year and i was so glad because i was like i can't i can't do that <laughs> right <laughs> right well and you mentioned like the you know like the, the graphic novels and comics roundtable kind of came to be very, pretty recently. Um, I guess, how did that all get started? And I, the bigger question is, you know, what convinced you to run for president? Jeez, oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's a great 
I'll circle back to that. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is definitely work that's been going on for a long time. So, you know, I mentioned you have a bunch of people advocating for this going back to the 1970s. Um, so Will Eisner had actually written a editorial for School Library Journal, which is one of our professional journals in 1974, really trying to make the case um, for comics in school and library collections. And so we started, um, for us, a lot of times we point to, there's a few like watershed moments in the mid 2000s. You have um, Jeff Smith Bone, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously he published it independently and then you all of a sudden have um, the creation of Scholastic's imprint and you know Bone is the first um, Scholastic graphic title and it just takes off, you know, breaks all the publishing records. Not to mention then you have the dawn of Reina and you know, Jin Yang and everything. Um, and this is where we really see, I think, with somebody like Scholastic that has always partnered so much with schools and libraries. So for us in the American Library Association, we have a large annual conference. So our annual conference, every year it depends on attendance, but it's anywhere between, I'm going to say like 20 to 40,000 people that attend our annual conference. Um, so wow. these are people who work in libraries all throughout the world. Yeah. And so we had our scheduled for Chicago um, in this coming June. And we've been doing programming at our annual conference. This is for more than a decade. And we also have um, what we call an artist alley on the convention, the convention floor of the American Library Association annual conference, where we have individual creators tabling. Uh, Gail Simone has been there, uh, Raina Telgemeier, um, Nathan Hale. If you don't know, he does really uh, great uh, history comics for kids called Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales. He's uh, tabled for us several times. And so I think things just started to pick up. We also have some, you know, very famous comics librarians who come before me. Uh, Robin Brenner, who's written um, comics books on manga and is out of, um, she's actually in Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. Um, and so a lot of people have been doing the work for a long time. Uh, C2E2, I just found out. The American Library Association has actually had a presence at C2E2 for a decade. So all of this is happening and like, you know, it's going on, but we still don't have professional recognition. Um, we were within our guild um, called what's uh, a member interest group. So basically a loose knit kind of volunteer organization within our professional guild. And it just sort of, I think things reached a head in which, um, you have San Diego Comic-Con. They've been doing professional sessions at the San Diego Public Library. It's been four or five years. Um, I got involved with New York Comic-Con because Read Pop has, almost for the past decade, offered professional badges for educators and librarians. You can actually go to Comic-Con either for free for one day or you can go for all four days, for example, for New York for a discounted rate. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I found this out, I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You know how hard it is to get a Comic-Con badge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is even how I ended up at San Diego. Like, I had, my brother lives in Southern California, and I remember getting him his tickets for his birthday and, you know, waiting online and, like, to put my name in the hat so potentially I could apply for a badge a year later. Um, so <laughs> that, you know, as a librarian that San Diego was doing stuff, I was like, I got to go to San Diego. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, there was one year that I went to because the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, they have a librarian and educator day too. 
Um, San Diego has librarian and educator programming. Uh, C2E2 has librarian and educator programming. And then um, I, along with my colleague Emily, had started that for New York. So um, we have like this groundswell of things that kind of all came together. Um, I always really inappropriately like to make an Avengers comment that it was like uh, <laughs> Tina Coleman, who is one of, um, she works in our membership office for the American Library Association. She was very strategic and like put a bunch of us in contact with each other. Um, I'm a dual citizen between the US and Canada and I've lived and worked in both countries and libraries in both countries. And so there's a few of us who have contacts in a few different places. Like my family's in Southern California, but I was living in New York for a long time. And I think it helped that there was a bunch of us doing similar work and also being pretty mobile all around North America. Mm -hmm. and. As you know, the con community is in itself kind of a virtual community. Like we see each other in person just a handful of times a year, but people are in touch. And it just was kind of a nice groundswell. Um, we also have really good support and um, feedback from the graphic medicine community. Um, so if you're not familiar with them, this is a group of doctors, nurses, medical practitioners, uh, medical librarians, um, who've been using graphic medicine. So I like to call it sort of a meeting of, if you will, art therapy and bibliotherapy for uh, training for doctors and nurses, for patient diagnosis, uh, patient therapy, um, and really so many fantastic uses of that, uh, especially graphic medicine memoirs. Uh, people have found really useful in getting patients and families to talk about diagnosis. So this community is uh, also starting right around the same time. Uh, it's interesting right now as we're recording this, Ian Williams, who's one of the founders of the graphic medicine community, he's out of the UK and he's a doctor. <laughs> so he's very busy right now. Right. Um, and uh, so all of this kind of came together right at the same time. And I, I think it's just, it feels sort of serendipitous, but also like it was maybe to make a library joke, long overdue. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we just got official status. Um, it's just a little over a year and a half ago. So we'll have our two-year anniversary of being an official roundtable this June. Well, congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, now to the big question, though, like how did you come to be the president of this? I mean, I, I again, <laughs> I don't want to put you too, under too much pressure here, but I am curious, you know, like it sounds like there's a lot of very like – incredible people involved um and you are the head of it what what how did you get there like that's that's so cool that you are essentially the the president running this whole thing right yep <laughs> i don't know okay okay <laughs> funny. Um, uh with the program i ran in new york so you know when you're a librarian some of the library goals, like if you will, in the con world, it's like, I want to go to San Diego. And then like the next goal is like, I want to present at San Diego, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So in the library world, it's like, I want to work at New York Public Library. So um, when I started working at New York Public, I was hired, the whole system was in a freeze and I got hired in base, it was grant funded. And so I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm like living my dream. Mm -hmm. And so I was on this project for a year and a half and I was building the collection for this school library partnership. And what I didn't realize is like, I just found myself kind of in the right place or at the right time. Uh, New York City was going through a huge um, changes with the introduction of what's called the Common Core State Standards. So new educational standards that were introduced in the US and New York City was one of the first adopters. So 
suddenly I'm building this educational collection and there's a whole bunch of national scrutiny on the work I'm doing because New York City is one of the first programs to do this, uh, first cities to do this. Uh, I'm working at New York Public, which is one of the largest library systems in the world. Mm -hmm. And then I go on to manage this program. So when I started managing the program, what I didn't really realize was uh, it's the largest school library program in the world. So (laughs) yeah, so I'm running this like multi-million dollar initiative. Um, We're working with uh, about a quarter of the schools in New York. So more than 500 schools. Um, I'm working at New York Public. So that's covers three boroughs of New York City. So the Bronx, Manhattan and Staten Island, Mm -hmm. Uh, Queens and Brooklyn have their own system. But I had counterparts in each of the systems. And then I was the lead on the program for the whole city. And yeah, I sort of feel the same way like about comics librarianship. I was just doing this work and I was helping organize panels. And because I was sort of in this weird position in which like um, in New York, we had funding to go to conferences. And so, you know, I was really trying to make connections within educational communities. So I went to like the social studies uh, teachers um, conference because uh, there's a lot of use in comics and teaching history. Mm-hmm. And I also was like, oh, I want to check out more of this educational programming around comics. And so I went to a bunch of the cons. I'm somebody who has traveled a lot. That's just sort of what I do. And uh, yeah, I don't think I realized it was going to be <laughs> it's like the program I ran in New York. I was like, oh, this is fine. <laughs> well, no, that's, <laughs> that's and it's still that's it's really cool. Like I'm 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 very like mm-hmm. excited for you. That's uh, very awesome. I mean, I guess the, the 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 other question I have about that is, you know, what kind of responsibilities do you have as the president of, the, of this roundtable? Um, so even that has been more than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we. Um, Within the American Library Association, because we are, you know, as I said, the oldest, largest library organization in the world, um, even getting a roundtable added uh, was a lot more work than I think all of us realized um, because it's such a large, old organization. They don't want to add divisions just because, right? Mm So even to get the paperwork and the support, we had to send out a petition to membership and get a groundswell of support before they would essentially even hear um the petition to add this we were actually the first round table added to the american library association in five years and at a time in which they were trying to sort of actively discourage because it makes sense we're such a large organization you don't want to add parts just because um and then what's been really interesting is we've probably become one of the fastest growing roundtables in the history of the american library association i think it speaks to the popularity of the work and also the fact that so many people have done the work to begin with so in a very short time um we have so as president um i have a board uh so we do have an eight member board and so I'm responsible for oversight of that board, but then we also have uh, 10 different committees and each of the committees has more than 20 volunteers. And those committees are, we have a membership committee to speak to our members, but then some of our more high profile committees are, we have a convention committee. So that is responsible for either directly planning programming or helping to support local programming at all the different cons that we have a presence at. So C2E2, New York, San Diego, Anaheim WonderCon, et cetera, et cetera. We have our conference committee, so that's planning for our annual conference. We have a resources and toolkits committee, so that's developing um, resources around comics, uh, libraries, and schools. Um, And, yeah, we have a reading list. So we actually are doing our own adult uh, graphic novel reading list because there's so many awards out there 
for comics, not so many, but there are a lot of awards for comics, but especially within librarianship, a lot of those awards are only for kids comics or for teen comics. Um, the Yelsa Great Graphic Novels does a great job. We've started to see a lot better recognition of kids comics, um, a comic, of course. Um, Jerry Craft's New Kid won the Newbery Award, first time ever in January, but there's not so much of an appreciation for adult readership of comics, I would say, in libraries in the way that we'd like to see it. Um, in most libraries, for example, the budget that they have allocated for buying comics, it still tends to fall under the purview of either the children's or the teen librarian that's actually not budgeted in the adult collection. So we have an adult reading list, so that's another committee. Um, yeah, we have a grant that we administer with actually the Will Eisner Family Foundation, and it's three grants that we give out to a library every year. And so three individual grants, and each of the grants are more than $6,000 US, and it's money to purchase comics, it's a donation of comics, and it's also money to support somebody from the library to attend our annual conference. So that's just some of <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. That's wow. I, that's yeah. incredible. I mean, this is this is all stuff that really warms my heart as someone who, for some reason, hadn't really gotten invested in using a library until I moved to New York and I had one of the greatest public library systems available to me. Um, like it, the work shows. Like it's 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 great that this type of stuff exists. I I can't thank you enough for it. <laughs> you and all the other librarians <laughs> out there. I mean. <laughs> I, I think it's it, and that's also part of what we've realized is that what we're doing is a lot of comics librarianship but it's also it's library advocacy um mm -hmm. every time we're on the comic-con floor it is actually the coolest feeling in the world when kids come up and they're like wow what are you doing here you're from the library and we're like yeah we're comic librarians and the kids are like that's a thing and we're like uh-huh <laughs> um, but i think also to do that community outreach aspect um it's definitely in librarianship. We are a profession that, you know, we we have our own struggles. Um, we're definitely a profession that in so much as we've done a lot of ag advocacy work, we also have been known to be gatekeepers at times. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is not just around comics. It's also around trying to better meet our communities where they're at and also get our profession a little bit um, up to speed on things that are going on. Uh, we don't do a great job, for example, of aggregating or collecting web comics. And I've heard feedback from a lot of libraries, well, that's hard. And I'm like, okay, I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. Um, but if people are reading web comics, shouldn't we uh, do a job of reflecting our communities to actually figure out a way that we can host that. Um, the Library of Congress, most people don't realize, beyond having one of the largest collections of comics in the world, they actually have a web comics web archive that you mm. can go to. And it's awesome. They have dinosaur comics. They have Hark of Vagrant, um, Hyperbole and a Half, and a really great collection. And so wow. I'd love to point to Library of Congress to be like, hey, y'all, if Library of Congress is doing this, <laughs> right. Um, hmm. and so we're trying to sort of use this not only to be advocate for comics, but also advocate for our profession being a little bit maybe more responsive and pivoting to be there for our communities so that, yeah, because we, we hear that from a lot of people. You're not the only person who's like, wow, I didn't realize that libraries had all this. Like this is, it's a constant thing that we're always kind of battling with. So is there anything that the average person can do to like help you and in your initiatives, particularly right now? <laughs> 
Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we have been trying to do, um, and we actually just launched it on Friday night, is we launch our hashtag and our social media platforms are LibComics, L-I-B-C-O-M-I-X. And so we launched a new initiative called LibComics Online. And one of the things we're trying to do is bring the advocacy we would normally do in person in the cons, um, in person in the libraries, online. And so we actually are doing reading recommendations. Um, we're also trying to signal boost other digital initiatives and uh, just trying to raise awareness of that. Um, so I think one thing that I would encourage everybody is um, a lot of what we do, again, is not just about advocacy for our profession, it's also advocacy around reading. So I would say, um, if you're not a comics reader right now, like there is a comic for you. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for, we have a lot of people who are all of a sudden homeschooling their kids. And we've, you know, I know a lot of people are really at loose ends and I totally get that. I would say comics, they are real reading. I know it's it's said enough and for a lot of us, we're like, ah, I can't believe we're still advocating for this. I think some people still need to hear it. Um, and I think that would be definitely something to have that assurance that, you know, this is real reading. There's really great resources out there and there are librarians here to help you. Um, so I think signal boosting and just talking about reading as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think for all of us, we're in this weird holding pattern. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, we're, we're huge advocates, um, you know, for, for reading comics, I guess, like beyond the, the current situation that we're in right now, you know, um, what can people do to, I guess, to advocate for libraries in general? Like, what, what would be your best recommendation for folks to say, I want to help my local library? Like, what's the best thing they can do? I think one of the best things is to use the library um, to become a library member. One of the things we have heard from people as well, I don't think the library has what I'm looking for. Um, if they don't have what they're looking for, put in a request. I mean, what we are actually, like, that is our what we're under is we want to make sure that we're buying things that reflect our community requests. So um, every library should have a collection request form. So essentially a buying request. So put in that request, um, support your library through checking out materials, so many digital reading platforms. Um, we do depend a lot on membership and circulation statistics. So the more you use the library, the better the library will be. Um, I would definitely say for anybody, you know, when it comes time to vote for public library budget or school library budgets, there's so many reasons why your library is supportive. There's even been research done by real estate agents that if you have an active, wonderful school and public library, your housing value will be better. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know it's a win-win, and I don't think people quite realize that. And I definitely think it's something we've talked about in our profession that sometimes we take it for granted that people know the value of a library um, and that we need to do a better job at advocating. And I think even to hear from people personally, their library stories and them sharing their stories with others, that really helps. Um, one of the stories I love to share is, I don't know if you know that Tupac Shakur actually got his start at a public library. They did not know that. No. <laughs> Sorry, you can go right now. So uh, Tupac Shakur, uh, his library was the Enoch Free Public Library. And one of the cool things about the Enoch Free Public Library is uh, the current librarian of Congress, so Dr. Carla Hayden, she was actually the director of the Enoch Free Public Library for a long time, not when Tupac was there, but... Um, Tupac Shakur uh, won a local talent competition put on by the public library and he actually rapped about library cards 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's That's amazing. An unacknowledged thing for a lot of people that for so many people, the library is, it's a safe place. Um, it's an after hours place. Like once school is out, mm-hmm. it's for so many people, it's where they access Wi-Fi um, or where they have a consistent Wi-Fi connection. It's access to a computer. Um, there's been... You know, right now with what we're in and um, libraries have closed because as physical spaces, um, we are not helping things if we stay open. But one of the very pragmatic things that people have been wrestling with is for so many people in our communities, um, Wi-Fi is a luxury. And so the library has that. um, But they also have really great support. Um, I don't think people are aware that if you come into the library, we have career resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have resources to actually help you start your own small business. Um, I mean, every library has career resources, uh, business resources, um, and generally people get involved in libraries because they want to help people, you know? Totally. <laughs> so. so yeah, I guess, uh, Paul, Kate, any, any final questions here? I was going to ask the, the the big weird one that's out there, which is how does Hoopla factor into this? But I'll, I'll wait uh, for was... Paul's question here. <laughs> Mike, 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 you read my mind. Okay. That was my big question is it might be too big to get into all the details right now, but how does the new emergence of digital platforms like Canopy and Hoopla, does it operate the same way that traditional physical library does in terms of buying and collections and all that? I would say yes and no. It really depends on the library. Um, for some libraries that have been more early adopters of digital reading, they've actually been able to integrate digital reading into a traditional library experience such that people are able to go into the catalog and find mm-hmm. what's ever available. So let's say I want to read Captain Marvel right now and Captain Marvel is checked out the physical copy. It'll immediately tell me, oh, we have a digital copy available. And okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of academic libraries have worked on that model for about 10 to 20 years because so many academic publications are not published in print. Mm-hmm. They're only done, especially journals, uh, academic journals are only done electronically. So for us in the public library and school library, it's definitely sort of playing catch up to a model that's been used by academic libraries for a long time. And I do think, though, that we're, some libraries are doing it really well. Some libraries, you know, um, I think it's a bit of a learning curve because it is a little different. And for, I think it showcases people's preferences sometimes for reading is that we have a lot of people that are still very physical uh, print readers. Um, I mean, personally, I actually do prefer a physical book myself. Mm-hmm. That being said, I'm like, always have to remind myself when I come to the job, it's not a matter of my personal preferences, like I need to put on my professional hat. And so I think that it's something that is definitely still kind of in its infancy, but we have seen huge pickup um, for titles in both Hoopla, Overdrive, um, Canopy, and I think there's also great potential for discovery. Um, Europe Comics um, made the choice to, as they were really trying to better expose their titles to especially an American market, uh, they've released a lot of their titles digital only to just sort of get their titles out there without having to worry about taking on the cost of Mm -hmm printing and i think that's a great way to actually have that discovery layer and increased browsability of new titles and it's given us more capacity also to represent indie titles um titles from smaller publishers um publishers for like international publishers and so 
we've been trying to push digital more and more, and especially mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> yeah. Really um, I mean, I've uh, actually given a lot of people the link to the Library of Congress webcomics archive and been like, hey, did you know this? Or do you know that you have titles in your Hoopla? Uh, do you know that you have titles in Overdrive? And also talking about other digital reading platforms, because I don't think that that's something that everybody is on board with yet. Um, right. The other thing is like um, with so many web comics, I mean, Instagram has become a really great platform for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, right. <laughs> there's a lot that I follow on um, Instagram and it's almost become, if you will, like the New Yorker platform for comics mm-hmm. and like, you have, like a great one panel or maybe a four panel comic on Instagram. And that's, not something that we've incorporated yet, but we're trying to when we make reading recommendations. Like I will try to make a recommendation of like, this is a really great series in single issues. This is a really great series that's actually in like a collected edition. This is a great uh, web comic and this may be an Instagram comic. So I try to think about the different formats in terms of reading when I make recommendations now. Is there any way that, um, you know, people that aren't librarians aren't involved in that community. Is there any way for us average just comic book fans who are advocates for libraries to be involved in the roundtable or are there openings there? Oh, 100%. So okay. it's funny that you should say this. So this episode will air soon, right? Yeah, it's going to air mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. On, on the uh, first. Okay, so guess what? On the first, our volunteer <laughs> form is still open. Um, but no, we've had, I would say... A lot of our membership is definitely people that work in libraries, but we have so many members that are library adjacent. So people that are educators, um, people that work in comic book stores, uh, creators themselves. Um, one of uh, our great advocates and a very active member has been Chris Aaron, the comics journalist. From mm-hmm. And Chris had actually uh, organized, we had a big advocacy push in September. It was called Creators Get Carded, and it was comics creators posing with their public library cards to really promote the public library and that mutually beneficial relationship between comic creators and libraries. Um, I was really excited. We kicked that off with a photo of uh, Chip Zdarsky making bug eyes at the camera. (laughs) It was great. Uh, And we had huge uptick from that. We had such a great um, feedback from creators. We actually featured more than one creator every day for all of September. So all told, we had almost 40 creators participate in that. And that was a really nice way of just publicizing that, like, hey, I'm a creator and I use the library, or these are the libraries I use. Um, And I think even for people in the library who maybe weren't aware that, I mean, most creators, they work from home, they're freelancers, and that has been a huge thing in terms of library promotion. So many people who don't have a traditional office are always using the library too. And so it worked for both promoting the work we do and I think also the library is a, a sort of a third space for everybody in the community. So, very cool. Um, well, yeah, I guess um, I think that's probably going to wrap up our show. Um, but Amy, thank you so much for your time today. This is this is fantastic. Um, if folks want to, if you don't mind, if folks want to reach out to you, maybe with some other questions, where can they find you on the internet to do so? Um, so the best way is to actually reach us. Um, you can reach the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable on Twitter or Instagram. We're at libcomics, so L-I-B as in Bob, C-O-M-I-X. And if they want to tweet at me directly, I'm at Librarylandia. So 
I got that handle about 10 years ago when I was like mainlining Portlandia and thought it was real funny. <laughs> well, that's great. Yep. I, yeah, I'll make sure to um, I'll make sure to plug all those in the show notes. So make sure you you reach out and follow and ask all your library questions to the roundtable. Um, and yeah, I guess you can follow the rest of us on Twitter. You can follow Kate at KL Fear. You can follow Paul at Oh Hi Pauly, and you can follow me at Mike Rappin. And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we post all sorts of things. We're also on Instagram, so go follow us there too at IRCB Podcast. This show is powered by fans like you, as well as our subscriber only episodes, which you can find on Patreon if you want to. Find find out more and join our patreon go to patreon.com slash ircb podcast in the first episode of the ircb movie club oh that's aired right. today march 29th yes. so you can go listen to it right now it's fantastic on our patreon if you haven't already please rate and review our show five stars and apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts you can join us over at discord for uh, hijinks and discussion over there at ircbpodcast.com slash discord and please make sure to tell friends even if they don't read comics please tell them to check out the show we really appreciate that uh, infinity shred is the best band in the universe they do all of our music we can't thank them enough xander is a high wizard who gives great high fives and he's a fantastic dungeon master he also edits the show i want to say thank you to paul and kate and thank you to amy for being on the show this week we've loved having you and until next time comics are good and so are you